This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Forever. Dog. Hello again. I am Gabe Gonzalez and you are listening to the QWERTY podcast. This is a weekly show from QWERTY and Forever Dog, truly a blessed union where I will be covering news, politics and pop culture that are impacting the LGBTQ community that are stirring emotions or conversation among us. And I will also invite a guest to hang out a bit, reflect on the week and just generally keep it cute despite whatever garbage fire is uh, happening around us. This week, we've got some headlines hot off the QWERTY presses. We'll be talking about the actor whose wish to see more gay villains on TV has come true, the teenager who changed an entire school district's rules by challenging their suspension, and the rumored series in production some viewers are hoping to pull the plug on before it even airs. We've also got one of my favorite people on the planet joining us for this week's show, an actor, writer, and haunting vocalist who will be talking to us about the problematic, the performative, and the podcastable. I am so excited that Elliot Glazer is joining us today, and we will get to him. But first, we got to talk about those headlines in a little segment we like to call Catch Her Up. All right. um, Our first story of the week, John Cameron Mitchell is playing Joe Exotic, uh, the individual also known as the Tiger King, in an upcoming series that's also co-starring Kate McKinnon as Carol Baskin. The actor John Cameron Mitchell, who was at a Queerty event in 2019, the Pride 50 celebrating the 50th anniversary of Pride, said, the world is ready for more gay villains, and he'll finally be getting his wish. Although he's played plenty of them in shows like Shrill or The Good Fight, which I'm sure you all have seen, and if you have not, I highly recommend it. I am excited to see him tackle a role that gives gay people a little more leeway uh, in terms of the characters they portray. An arguably imperfect and complicated individual whose life is now under a lot of scrutiny after a documentary about his, uh, I guess, mostly illegal business and subsequent incarceration for attempting to hire someone to murder his rival, Carol Baskin. That was the first thing that I really dove into at the beginning of the pandemic, and I just feel like it's colored my entire experience now. Um, anyway, Joe Exotic is, is arguably a villain with some depth, right? Whose life has become this kind of myth about ego and heartbreak and revenge engine. I couldn't think of a gayer story. I'm thrilled. John Cameron Mitchell himself also called Joe Exotic a modern folk anti-hero and told Deadline, Joe and I are the same age and like him, I grew up queer in Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. So I feel like I know a little bit about this guy and his desperate attempt to conquer an inhospitable world. That's a really beautiful way to put it and uh, really an exciting perspective to be approaching this role from. I'm still not sure if this is going to be a comedy or a drama or a very dark combination of both, but so far I'm interested. Like why not end this pandemic with the same story 
story we started it with. I do love that it took just as long to create a scripted Tiger King as it did to make a vaccine. We've truly accomplished so many things in the last few years, few years, year and a half. I have no concept of time. Anyway, let's move on to our second headline of the week. Thanks to one teenager, a town in Texas now has a gender-neutral dress code for public schools in their district. Trevor Wilkinson, a gay teenager suspended from school for wearing nail polish, fought the local school board on this policy, a move that got plenty of media attention at the time, and we actually talked about on the podcast not too long ago. But despite his direct appeal to the school board and an online petition with hundreds of thousands of signatures supporting Trevor's effort, he still had to serve an in-school suspension last year, which he said was homophobic in the way it enforced gender rules and dress codes. But he did end up winning the war. The Clyde School Board voted Monday, April 19th, to accept new gender-neutral language in the student handbook regarding the dress codes in all the schools in their district. The same standards now apply to students of all genders, and Trevor told local TV station KTXS, it is with great honor that I am pleased to announce that Clyde High School's dress code is officially gender-neutral forever. I am thrilled to see the vibrant colors students will be painting their nails and the different ways it will infuriate old-fashioned teachers. We love it. I went to a private school. That was I had to wear a polo, man. That really wrecked my fashion for a while. All right, let's move on to our last story of the week. There is a reason why people are hoping to put a stop to a rumored Netflix series starring a former reality TV star, and it involves a name it seems none of us can shake this week, no matter how hard we pedal on our Pelotons. Uh, that name is Colton Underwood, who came out earlier this month during a high-profile interview, only for a rumor to spread that same day that a reality show about him, I guess, learning to be gay was already in production. No matter how cynical or tasteless or misguided I may find that decision, far be it for me to tell someone how they should come out. I think if you want to make some money from coming out, do it like the girls are doing it. Get an OnlyFans. Do a paid grid post on Instagram. You know what I mean? Do you. Either way. But I do feel like the criticism surrounding the show is less about the taste or the timing and more about some problematic things that have been made public about Underwood, including allegations he harassed and stalked a woman, um, leading to a restraining order, and that he follows far-right conspiracy theorists like Dan Crenshaw and Candace Owens, who have peddled lies about everything from the presidential election to vaccines. There's also the undeniable fact that Underwood is a conventional attractive cis white gay dude who's already recognizable to straight audiences. While there are so many talented queer people out there who come from traditionally marginalized backgrounds and have given so much to the community and still don't have a TV show. A lot of folks are wondering who this show is for or maybe why this guy needs another platform on TV. Again, coming out can be tough these days. This is a a topic that we talked about with Alaska last week. Uh, I wouldn't wish for coming out to be any harder than it has to be for anybody, no matter how terrible they might be. But maybe this is a moment where you're gay guide should have been Lance Bass. Uh, When Lance Bass was asked about Colton Underwood last week on the Almost Famous podcast, he suggested Underwood sit back, listen, and learn. That's great advice coming from a pop star and trained cosmonaut. Okay, he was not a cosmonaut, but he did complete cosmonaut training. I love that little tidbit about Lance Bass. Truly respect for that. Could have been our first gay pop star in space. We were so close. Now it is time to bring on our next guest, a writer and actor best known for playing himself on Broad City, for which he also wrote and produced. He's also written for some of your favorite comedy shows like New Girl, Younger, and Teachers, and is the host of the live, although recently live-streamed, comedy concert, Haunting Renditions, which plays in Los Angeles, New York, and at festivals around the country. I am so, so excited to have this guest on the show today. Please welcome, from the privacy of your home, but feel free to applaud, Elliot Glazer. How you doing? Hey, what's up, Gabe? How's it going? Great. Thanks for hopping on today. Where are you coming from these days? I'm in L.A. 
And I am um, in my co-working, sp- I have like a tiny little office because I needed to get out of the house during quarantine and I fall asleep whenever I work from home. So it's, <laughs> it's a good alternative to falling asleep. I love that. Yeah, I recently moved, but in my previous apartment, I just didn't have, like we were all trying to use the desk in the living room. So I mm. would fully fall asleep with my laptop open on my bed at the beginning of the pandemic. It was not I great. hate it. But at least when I do it here, that if I fall asleep here, someone could potentially see me. And so it keeps me <laughs> it keeps me alert and awake do you have just like a little glass window open up to like a common space with the other folks that could quietly yeah, judge they, or they could just pass by and see me sleeping and just keep on walking but I, I would be embarrassed I definitely would be a little ashamed you should post a little sign outside the door please tap if you see me sleeping yeah that's a good idea wake me up <laughs> bringing a new sense of cooperation to co-op working spaces that's right exactly yeah and if it was actually kind of scary at first because it was you know, I, I got this about six months ago when it was at the height of the pandemic, I think, in November here in L.A. And so, you know, it was trepidatious, but everyone's very careful and all masks are worn. And now I've got my two vaccines, so I'm kind of a douche. I feel like <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of a douche. I don't want to, like, brag, but I did not post about getting either of the vaccines. Not because I think it's tacky or tasteless or anything. I just wasn't, I didn't feel any urge to just tell people, I guess. But now that I can do it here verbally, I will celebrate myself for getting them. I'm so excited excited that it's happening. I'm so excited that people are getting it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who's still on the fence about getting it or getting it this soon. And she kind of opened my eyes up to it because, you know, ultimately I, I'm like, I want you to get the vaccine. But she helped me realize that it wouldn't necessarily be cool if I were to shame her for not getting it. So I can tell her that I hope she gets it, but it's not my place to tell her what to do or, you know, judge her for it. Sure. I, I mean, yeah, I think there's a lot of proof that like if you really want to kind of sway somebody into changing their mind, shaming is maybe the least effective tactic, even though it's like the one we instinctively want to jump to, right? It's like, you're putting other people in danger. Like, this is wrong. Yeah, you dig your heels in when when you tell somebody what not to do. They'll just want to do the opposite of that. Totally, yeah. I played the long game with my grandma, who was living in Florida. And she's, you know, a very stubborn woman in her early 80s, who was like, my cousin died from a vaccine in like 1952. You absolutely cannot tell that woman what to do. So I had to, you know, it was a lot of conversations and just kind of trying to present her with the most accurate information I could in the hopes that she would kind of come to that decision on her own. And thankfully she did because Florida is a mess right now. Yeah. My friend is my age, so I certainly respect her decisions. But if my grandma were alive and were to be stubborn, I would literally have dragged her kicking and screaming to the doctor. (laughs) Kicking and screaming. You get this now in your arm and you have no... I dreamt about the... I had dreams about getting vaccinated. It's insane. (laughs) Literally dreams. That's like the equivalent to a sex dream during the pandemic. That's like the most erotic. Yeah, I love that. Truly, getting poked. (laughs) That's another thing. The language surrounding, like, I know a lot of writers need to find creative synonyms when they're writing about the same thing, but calling a vaccine Mm. the jab has been like a very, it's a weird verb for me. I don't know if I like that word. Yeah, I don't love it. I, I don't care for the jab. What I do care about is early on, the thing that blew my mind the most was not that people weren't rushing to get it. I was not surprised when I saw people rushing to get it and read about people, you know, very rich people or connected people jumping the line, which I thought was pretty abhorrent. But mm-hmm. specifically, there's one gay, I think he's like a porn star or sex worker or whatever, who filmed himself getting the vaccine, talked about it because he signed up as an Uber Eats driver, but did not plan 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. To actually work for Uber Eats, he just found uh. that loophole. So he signed up as an Uber Eats driver. Then he went uh. to get the vaccine. Then he filmed it from two different angles. Oh, my God. He had like a crew. <laughs> he had his friend film him. And it was just the perfect video because he is holding his own phone, staring at his own reflection in the phone at a drive up injection Jesus site. Christ. And he said he's like, obviously, you know, staring at himself. He can't look away from himself. And he says to the woman who, who's in a full on hazmat suit, who's got the injection like in her hand he goes i want to take a picture with you and she's she's nowhere near in frame so he's obviously (laughs) like he just wants a picture of himself and so she goes she's like uh like there's people behind him you know so she goes to you know to inject him with the needle and he's doing almost like a duck duck face kind of thing and she goes please don't flex please don't flex (laughs) and it took on two meanings at once which was just brilliant like it was just a brilliant moment but he was such a monster for doing it and posting about it and taking selfie and asking her to be in the picture even though he did not of course include her he didn't want a woman in a hazmat suit in the picture it was just all of these awful things put together and it was a brilliant brilliant cacophony of just the worst person (laughs) brilliant cacophony i really i love that there's it was yeah poetry please don't fl- she was just so please don't flex please don't flex dude you know just keep it moving you know it's hilarious <laughs> oh god i feel like this guy to me is the type of subject i imagine is discussed on your podcast a lot yes i'm yes, i was he fascinated was. yeah it's called you're making it worse and i love just kind of the synopsis of it the good the bad and the ugly tropes of contemporary gay life i think fully think of this man yeah i mean i think that we at least on the podcast it's not by any means like a ne- like a fully negative podcast but another name for the podcast was initially <laughs> grumpy young men in that (laughs) (laughs) in that it's like three gay guys and we're we're all just longtime friends and comedians the three of us but have found shared friendship and relationships through grousing about the elements of contemporary gay life and queer culture that are frustrating i guess we've felt for so long like nobody else would echo those sentiments or share it with us and of course they do and of course people like us are out there but it's always felt like you you should be a shamed if you complain about the gay experience and i am not going to back away from doing you can't make me not complain about it if anybody's allowed to it's us god damn it like i I understand how people outside the community you know when you encounter a marginalized community it's like you kind of flatten them into into like a sort of martyrdom for a hot second you know what i mean and it it kind of ignores the complexity that can exist within you know people within marginalized communities can also be hurtful and perpetuate bad things in different ways right it doesn't mean that they're always 
always on the less privileged end of every dynamic. And so kind of just like unpacking like shitty Latinos around election season and then shitty gay men like around pride and like maybe Halloween has been just like the constant juggling of, of my life. Like we could all exist. Halloween like, in L.A. It's like, you know, Easter for Christians, but it, for gays on, on Halloween, it's like their ultimate holiday. I, I still remember <laughs> at some point Bowen Yang, I think it was a tweet that just sat with me forever where he said, white gay men is true white supremacy. And I was like, oh my, oh my God. It's, That's exactly not it. off. It can be very scary at times. And especially in a time where we're all so culturally sensitive and aware and woke, but at the, you know, on the other hand, like overshooting in our need for mm-hmm. perfection and impatient. And so, you know, I think there's a fine balance to strike, but it's hard to find that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is kind of what's so compelling about this push and pull. It's like, we're talking about John Cameron Mitchell playing a real life villain and how there's kind of, you know, room for a constructive conversation out of that. But then not every, right, like Colton Underwood is like a different type of gay villain maybe for this (laughs) month, right? Like to me, it feels like there's not anything constructive there. It's just sort of careening into something that feels very disastrous and it's like throwing up a bunch of red flags. So I think even the conversation around that complexity is like in and of itself also really tough to parse out, right? It's like we want room to be messy, but we also don't like want to platform every messy person, I guess. (laughs) There's an eagerness, I think, to vilify other gay guys, specifically like hot white gay guys. There's a there's a desire to do that. But I also understand I understand why. But sometimes even I, if I'm like posting or discussing something on social media where I'm calling out like pretty behavior, even I will get comments from other people saying like like burn him or or not burn him. What's the what's the the gay term that's like Drag oh him? My God. Were you looking what is for it? that? Drag him. Drag, drag him. You forgot drag him. Yes. I'm so bad him. at drag I'm him. so bad at the terminology sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, yes, queen. You were queen. My sister perpetuated yes, queen on Broad City, and nothing True, sounds yes. less yeah. natural coming out of my mouth. Nothing sounds less natural coming out of my mouth than yes, queen. It's so like such a grunt. Yes, queen. Um, <laughs> but so many, but guys will just come and be like, you know, drag him, drag him. And it's like, for me, that's not the it's not the fun idea of drag dragging him, so to speak. Mm-hmm. There's something to me about f- pointing out the absurdity in so much gay behavior, even if it's performative. That's where I find some catharsis in finding people who are like, oh, wow, you're right. This is insane. And I'm and I'm glad somebody can help me take a critical lens to it. But it's not necessarily out of hatred and violence and wanting to drag somebody else. It's more just like, can we stop and take a look at this? Because this is bananas. You know, that, that's sort of where I like to live. Yeah. And I think that's a good way of looking at it, right? Like this whole scenario is bananas, right? Like Colton Underwood is not the reason it's bananas. He's like a a symptom of the broader problem, right? So it's like, to me, the most productive thing is to not make it personal because if you're making it personal, then you like veer into the caddy and it gets like kind of deviates from the thing at at hand, right? Which is like, what is the system that is allowing these folks to thrive and these to not, right? That's ignoring these others. And I think it goes beyond one person. And that's the tough part because then that involves like a broader conversation about systemic change and not just being like, drag him. He's he's canceled this week, but next week we'll forget. And he's a meme. It's easy to hate him and it's easy to make him the villain. But for me, at least, it's not he's not the villain. The villain is the idea that somebody from something as almost violently heteronormative as The Bachelor, yeah. you know, toxically, like mind bendingly heteronormative in a way that <laughs> has to have some effect on our freedoms. You know, like even if I couldn't name it like it does, having somebody who is at the center of 
of that and then rewarding him not for coming out so much, but for like, I would be touched if he came out and just did so. But there seems to be a desire in that for more fame or infamy. Mm -hmm. And he started in a public platform that was as empty as The Bachelor. So you can't not include somebody's past in that way, especially with the whole stalking thing. I mean, the idea that this guy allegedly put a tracking device on a woman's car, it's it's also public and scary and performative that it's hard to imagine just pretending that this stuff doesn't predate him. And the moment he comes out, yes, I can feel proud for him and happy for him and cathartic for him, but it comes with baggage. And then on top of it, the idea that, you know, he basically came out and then, you know, yawned. And then the next minute he was like, and I might have a Netflix show about coming out. (laughs) And it's like, wait, wait, wait. So it just, then it, then it just immediately sort of invalidates the journey. And I Mm -hmm. would, you know, ultimately I would like to be able to support and, and cheer on that moment in your life when you do come out and you do feel like you've emancipated yourself from some sort of repression. But when it comes with all this baggage and then, you know, and merely an hour later, it's like he's potentially doing this coming out show with another hot gay ex-athlete. It's like, it's just so mind-numbing because it totally neuters the actual journey that other people go through. And again, I mean, to me, it just boils it all down to sex appeal. And I find that to be so, so depressing. And totally. so it just never ends. It never, ever, ever ends, you know, like I'm not like sex negative. I'm just so tired of everything being about sex, 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 sex. It's like, just because he's hot, this is what happens to him. And just because he's safe to like straight people who watch The Bachelor, he gets a show. It's it's and again, it's not about him. It's about, like you said, the system. It's about everything that surrounds it and kind of is complicit in making it possible. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's the same reason politicians can line up behind something like gay marriage, because it's framed in a way that it feels safe to, you know, heterosexual audiences. But then when it comes to like defending trans kids in public schools who need our frigging help, you know, nobody can touch that because that's that's a hot button talk. And so it's like it is it's that hypocrisy that is systemic and goes unchecked when we don't look at things critically right and so i think that's the important thing to remind ourselves of so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back And welcome back. You're listening to the QWERTY podcast. Hopefully you knew that. We haven't been gone for that long. I'm your host, Gabe Gonzalez. I am talking to our incredible guest today, Elliot Glazer. And I want to ask about some of your more recent projects, kind of how you have found working in TV writing. You've written for so many different comedy shows. What was your, you know, I feel like a lot of writers are like, okay, like this was kind of my moment, my moment where I was like, okay, like I got this gig and this is my foot through the door. Like, wow, I I like found the kind of show or project I'm passionate about. Was there a moment when that clicked for you or were you kind of just like in the midst of it and you were like, oh, wait, I love this. Like, this is great. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was doing comedy in New York and sort of throwing everything at the wall to see what would stick, I didn't fully understand how one could make a true financial living, (laughs) quote unquote, doing comedy. And it seemed like, oh, writing, I see writing on shows like you can vacillate between the two things there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of interchangeability between people who are some type of comedian whether it's stand-up or sketch, et cetera, et cetera, who also learn how to write. And I think there's a more traditional route to doing that through like dramatic writing or, Mm -hmm. you know, or being a playwright or, you know, almost taking the theater route or taking the more traditional, like working your way up from the bottom of the totem pole. I was lucky enough to sort of work up into comedy, achieving some modicum of success and then take a lateral chance at getting a script in front of Darren Starr, who hired me on my first job on uh, Younger. That was my my big break. 
break. But the moment that I realized I, that it was even a possibility was honestly in college, I interned at Conan. That was truly and genuinely the first time that I was like, oh, I'd never really stopped and thought about the mechanics before of how something like this works, of how comedy is made in a format that that is an office, so to speak. That really kind of broke my brain. And then I loved it. It followed up the next year interning at SNL. So I, I it was it was pretty amazing. Oh, that's so neat. I didn't know you were an intern at SNL. What was was there like a memorable guest host or musical guest while you were where you of were course. there? Where you were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Yeah, that would be um, America's pop punk princess. Ashley Simpson had her <gasps> lip sync debacle when I was there. You, you were there for that historic moment. I was there for that historic moment. <laughs> oh, my. I just that's got to be in your memoir. There's oh, I hope there. there's a whole chapter, a whole chapter dedicated to that. There will be. I, I still, you know, I think about music a lot. My life comedy is all so, so heavily music based. And Ashley has always been someone who I found fascinating in that she sort of, I don't know, I don't know if flew under the radar is the right term, but sort of um, was able to find huge pop success in an almost invisible, not invisible journey to get there. But, but basically she kind of just hit. She's, you know, Jessica Simpson's little sister. I think she was like, like an actress on cable and maybe did some background dancing for Jessica. And then MTV handed her a reality show about yeah. becoming a musician, which is like already so unnatural unto itself. The idea of being <laughs> yeah. like, I am going to become a musician and I'm going to have cameras film me becoming a musician. But the joke <laughs> is that the show is EP'd by her father and yet it's deeply cruel. And the editing, yeah. the, the wink, wink of the editors is that she, she cannot say, everyone around her is like, she can't say thing, you know? And then this giant song, this song, which is really good, becomes huge, Pieces of Me, you know, it's a great song, but she sort of I guess, stumbled her way there because she's a kid, you know, yeah. and then has this giant, almost Grecian downfall <laughs> on TV, yeah. <laughs> not even on her own show. Like her yeah. story fascinates me. And the fact that she never really bounced back, but was able to marry Diana Ross's son. So now she is literally at Thanksgiving with Diana Ross. Like her life is fascinating to me and her story is fascinating to me. And yet I feel like I'm the only one who's like, this is nuts, right, guys? Honestly, I would watch the Hulu documentary Redeeming Ashley Simpson <laughs> that you pitch like fully. Thank I feel you. like you have the treatment. We've laid it out. It's here. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. OK, so now that we have gotten like some strong musical opinions, I'm going to ask you for some more. But first, sure. I, I need you to clarify something for me. So you're the host of this show, Haunting Renditions, which involves guests performing very unique covers of songs sometimes. So I want to know two things. First, what qualifies a rendition as haunting? What's the criteria there? And then I'm going to throw you a few songs and you're going to tell me if they're haunting or not haunting. Yeah, I mean, the show is a is a weird mixed bag that I still have trouble describing. But yeah, it's like a live <laughs> show with me as, you know, I'm sort of the, the MC of this show that feels like a variety show, but I went to school for opera. So it's actually like there's a full orchestra. It's me singing. <gasps> it's with guests doing stuff. It's music based. And we're basically doing a haunting renditions of songs and call the tagline is that, that I make bad songs good and not all the songs are bad but most of them are bad uh, you know essentially what makes a song haunting is that you've just forgotten about it you know there are some that are on the nose like a smash mouth all-star you know stuff that's on the nose that's nostalgic but then there's like the deeper cuts where you don't know what song I'm singing with the band you just know the lyrics by heart but you've never stopped to think about that song until you realize oh my god this is uh one week by the bear 
bare naked ladies. Why do I know every word to one week by the bare naked ladies? Ew, you know, that's I like that that sort of experience for the audience that starts mm-hmm. con- with confusion and ends with shame and delight. Oh, shame and delight and a little bit of nostalgia. That's a strong yeah. feeling. That's haunting. That's haunting. That's it. All right. We've got it. What What has been one of your favorite or maybe most memorable haunting renditions on the show? Honestly, I mean, when it comes to most memorable, my so my the band leader in New York, Mike, he was uh, the musical director of our acapella group in college. So oh, he's, yes. a, he's a genius. He made a Bach-esque concerto out of Kokomo by the Beach Boys. And the most memorable, the reason that that song is the most memorable memorable for me is that one time <laughs> on stage, I was performing it. It's all strings light and light piano. And we show the music video in real time, but with the re- reorchestrated song. And I just lost it because in the midst of the show, I'm not really thinking too much about the material. You know, it's, it's like, like material that I've planned ahead of time. And I just, I think I just sang, come on, come on, pretty mama. And I just like that line was so gross and just felt so predatory. And so, so just so dirty old man that, that it just, all of the like ickiness of that song and the sort of tragedy of this era of this flop era of (laughs) the beach boys got to me. And I was hysterically laughing on stage through the entire song. And I felt so bad. And everybody was like, no, it was so much fun. Like it got everybody laughing. I felt terrible but apparently it was it was actually a lot of fun for people just to watch me cry with laughter from <laughs> the lyrics that like that's the point of the show you know you should yeah. be la- be like come on pretty mama like it's, a, <laughs> it's literally a song about where we should go on vacation it's a list of places to go on vacation Th- that's definitely the most memorable and yeah discovering new narratives in this song truly that's I right love that. so i have a few questions for you now there's some things that i think may some songs i want to ask about and uh they're all covers so i want to know if according to your criteria they've got that right mixture to make them haunting yeah for sure so first we're going to start off with fergie's version of the star spangled banner did we see this <laughs> of course how do you feel are we haunted or not by that one i'm haunted in the the wrong way i mean <laughs> what i love about that is that for so long fergie was the face of cultural appropriation oh yeah and so watching her as this sort of chameleon navigating these waters in the aughts where you couldn't really challenge her on it watching her do that was fascinating and now watching her do the star spangled banner and i'm trying to imagine what trying to like qualify what that approach was it was sort of like jazz meets opera it was like bad belting uh, that's not haunting that's like chilling <laughs> chilling <rendition. laughs> chilling yes but I give her props. Like she she really committed to it. She went there. She made the choice and she stuck to it. It did. It elicited a similar feeling to hearing Kim Cattrall scat. Oh, my God. That's that's canon. That's gay canon. <laughs> that's queer yeah. canon. Dare I say it? Yeah. OK. Celine Dion's I Drove All Night, which I didn't know was a cover. I'm going to say because that was in a commercial for a minivan, it's certainly <laughs> haunting. But when it comes to Celine Dion, the true haunting rendition beyond everything else is from some VH1 concert years ago where she sang You Shook Me All Night Long by ACDC. <gasps> oh my God. She duetted with Anastasia, who was that sort of like butch pop star from the early aughts who like you assumed was like Bosnian, but she was like from America. <laughs> And they did, they did like, you shook me all night long. Celine had almost like a, a shag mullet. 
and she was wearing like flesh tones and doing the air guitar on her leg and reading the, you could see that she was reading the lyrics off of teleprompter. And that to me is the most haunting rendition of all, you know, Celine be damned. It was the most haunting. You know what? Yeah. I don't think anything can top that. That's, no. that's the most, we found it. We found the it's most literally, haunting It's literally, it's one rendition. of my most watched YouTube videos is her screaming. You, she goes like, you shook me girlfriend. Like she's still <laughs> messing around with the terminology. Even though she's yes. lived here for a long time, I'm like, huh, still struggling. She really, her ad libs are are just, I, it's it's almost like trying to decipher Cher's tweets. It's, I don't yes. know from where they're summoned or yeah. exactly where they're going, but I'm holding on for the ride and I'm there for it. I love it. Yeah, it's a link. It's a linguistic roller coaster. <laughs> linguistic roller coaster. I you shook me, girlfriend. That. Shake me, girlfriend. <laughs> so good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Elliot, for helping us discern truly what is haunted. What renditions are haunting? I'm very excited to catch the next live stream and see more of your guests. You've had some really incredible folks on the show. Well, so. Thank you. And hopefully the next one is a live stream that's also live so we yes. can do both in the normal world. That's the we hope. I love that, right? Yeah, yeah, let's take advantage. I'm or down. Or in New York. Or I'll do it in New York again at Littlefield and you'll come. Yes. Oh, my God. Come on back. I am so... Oh, my God. I haven't set foot in a theater in a year and a half. I can't wait. Yeah. Oh, the promise. Yeah, I'd love to. We have one more thing to do, and it's a little game um, that we've ended most of our shows with called Let Me Get You canceled. And uh, the aim of the game is usually to have our guests defend an unpopular or obviously incorrect opinion or person, usually one ripped from the week's headlines. So today I'm going to let you pick who to defend. But here's here's what I'd like to hear from you. Given that we've talked about gay villainy and how quickly we create villains, I would like for you to select a gay villain that does deserve a TV show these days and give us at least three reasons why. And you've got a lot of room here. They can be fictional. They can be real. They can be non-villains playing villains. Just a, a gay monster or a queer monster that deserves a TV show. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's Aaron Schock, the congressman. <laughs> I mean, oh God. that to me is... is. But I have, to, I have to veer... At least Aaron came out. Like, Lindsey Graham, I think, is, the, is probably the most villainous in that, obviously, we can't say that he's definitively gay. But if you're queer or you have eyes and ears, <laughs> you, you probably can tell. Yeah. And so I would watch that show because I need to know... I need to know the mechanics of how somebody... Forget about being a Republican, but can can legislate. I, I need to know how somebody who is even potentially queer can take such public stances and do such political theater, really wanting to hog the show and the camera lens and the attention um, without actually, you know, talking about the potential queerness or the potential uh, minority group that he's a part of. You know, obviously he, he doesn't I mean, we don't know if he's actually gay and he also doesn't want, doesn't seem to want to claim that he's straight either. So. So wherever he lives, wherever his sexuality <laughs> lives, I would love to know how someone like him or other even out politicians, but but really someone like Lindsey can negotiate being for Trump, being anti-Trump, you know, railing against Christine Blasey Ford and 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 can stand for and against can just waffle like that. I, I don't know where you get the conscience or the lack of conscience mm -hmm. to do that and what drives him like that's what I'd want to know. I'd want to know what drives somebody to be such a villain and such a gaslighter. I think that that part of it too is, you know, in the past, I wouldn't have found him annoying and I wouldn't have been, you know, hoping for somebody to call him Lady G on Twitter, which is obviously
obviously its own humongous (laughs) thing. But beyond that, I think in the last five years, being such a sycophant for Trump was so repulsive (laughs) and so bewildering that he became a gaslighter and jumped headfirst into the culture of gaslighting Democrats and liberals. That to me is just that I I would would want to watch that show, but I would require that he not be paid to do so. Yeah, it's like it's almost like the fascination with watching a documentary about Ted Bundy. It's like, do we need to talk about this crazy murder? But people are fascinated by like evil, twisted minds. At what point does someone like Lindsey Graham decide to go from being a Republican who's, you know, potentially closeted, but friends with John McCain's and the moderate Republicans who are not full blown monsters to what he became? And, you know, I mean, I personally and maybe I don't know what it says about me, but I'll never forget the way he patronized Christine Blasey Ford in Mm. the Kavanaugh Mm -hmm. hearings and the the one man show that he put on that was so not just bad for humanity, but also so embarrassing for him. I just wonder what and when and where and why does someone like that decide to make those decisions to to Mm. do those things? That's that's bananas to me. I can't imagine that. And I'm a performer. You know, I can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine it. It's it's crazy. So I want to know the inner workings. Yeah. As comedians, we have debased ourselves publicly in many ways, but never would we sink so low. Yeah. Right. Like, never. Yeah. Yes. His his decision to die on the hill for some of the worst stuff and the worst people. Donald Trump gave out his phone number in the early debates. He gave out his cell phone number on TV. How do you go back from that? Man, this sick what's fascination was brain? like, what's what are the brain worms? They're not even brain worms. They're like wor- they're like rotted worms within Soul the worms. worms. <laughs> Soul worms. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's true. we've coined it. There we go. That's beautiful. <laughs> All right. Well, Elliot, thank you for divulging that sick fascination that you would My love pleasure. to see unpacked televisually. I appreciate it. And I would love to see Ar- Aaron Shock as a co-star. Honestly, yeah. B- get the whole like Real Housewives esque <laughs> cast of closeted Republicans who have done Yes. things that hurt people. Also, remember Mich- Michelle um, Bachman, that lunatic from years oh ago? Oh, my God. Remember oh how gay God. her husband was? Oh, man. Yeah, it like, just hurts Put him to... on the show. I want to watch him on the show, too. <laughs> he's like a friend of the Republicans. Yes, you know what I mean? Of. He's not a main cast member. He just shows Luan up to the parties. season five. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> friend of. <laughs> but, Elliot, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been so much fun. And my before pleasure. we go, I truly, like, this has been a blast. But I do want everybody to know, I'm you're very Googleable, but let our guests know, where can people find you? Online, on TV, in any medium. Talk to us. Um, I'm just on at Elliot Glazer on Instagram. I barely use Twitter. Facebook is a techno dungeon at this point, so don't look for me on there. But uh, you can do that and you can listen to You're Making It Worse. That's my podcast and my live show is called Haunting Renditions Live. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much again for coming on today. Please make sure you follow Elliot on social. I was going to say socials, but just the social, (laughs) the one frequent social, you know, limit it, be healthy about it. Please make sure to support the QWERTY podcast on the socials or by subscribing, rating or reviewing our podcast, wherever you get yours. You can also get your QWERTY fix every day at QWERTY.com. QWERTY, the podcast has been a dream production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. QWERTY is hosted by me, Gabe Gonzalez, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered and edited by Shireen Lani Yunez, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Fred Boehm, Alex Ramsey, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Dan Tracer, and Melissa D. Mons. Forever! <laughs> <laughs>